in zones of conflict is like this very kind of um, strange situation that you can walk around a house and on one side is like totally, you know, like destroyed and it looks devastating. And on the other side, they're like people uh, following their lives as before. So I would say on one hand, this is actually very beautiful to see that life goes on, right? That people are managing and trying just to go on with their lives no matter what. And on the other hand, of course, it's very kind of a, a disturbing image. Like how can you like follow your lives while around there is like death and suffering. But I would say it's um, the resilience of people in, in this moment that is stronger than the uh, brutal force of any weapon. Uh, so I would say in a way it's positive. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 205 of the ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyotsuka.com. If you're a regular listener, you likely know about my signature program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. -okay. We call it A-OK -okay for short. And this is the six-week program that I built off of my patented cartography system that helps ADHD women figure out what they should do with their life. With A-OK, -okay, we are going to figure out who you really are, what's important to you, what you value, and what your strengths, passions, superpowers, and purpose are. And then you're going to build your life around that. AOK -okay includes live office hours with me, a community of other ADHD women that are just like you, the AOK -okay system, worksheets, and you're going to create your own AOK -okay intelligence report. And I promise you, it's a lot of fun. So we're going to start on Tuesday, January 24th. It's my first AOK -okay in the month of January. And then we're going to have our first office hours on Wednesday, the 25th, and every Wednesday after that for the next six weeks. What a great way to finally discover who you are exactly and what you're meant to do with your one life. And what a great way to start the new year. So if you book with the code HOLIDAYS2, you're going to get $100 off of 
your ADHD brain is a-okay until the program is full. So I'm not sure if that's going to be in this next week or the following week. If you're interested in giving yourself a gift over the holidays and want to know more, pop on over to tracyoutsuka.com forward slash A-OK. And don't forget to use the code HOLIDAYS2. I'd love to have you join us. So now let's get on to our podcast. So my purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly amazing at something. And boy, do I have an amazing woman to introduce you to today. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Lucia Cherky. Lucia Cherky was born and raised in the Swiss mountains in a small town close to the border of Austria and Liechtenstein. As a child, she knew she wanted to become a journalist, so much so that she began working for the local newspaper at the age of 14. Six years later at 20, she found herself in Russia as a delegate for the European Youth Press, where she attended an event about free speech and journalism. This experience prompted Lucia to start traveling to several countries in the so-called called post-Soviet space. She also began learning Russian. In the following years, Lucia continued to work in journalism, mainly for Swiss public broadcaster SRF. She is now 28 years old and their first ever female correspondent in Moscow, where she covers all post-Soviet countries, including Russia and Ukraine. When the full-scale invasion of Ukraine began in February, Lucia was in Kiev with rockets exploding outside of her hotel window. In the past nine months covering the war, Lucia has started to appreciate her ADHD brain like never before. Lucia, did I get all that right? Yeah, you did. Hi, Tracy. Hi, I'm just delighted to have you here. Okay, so my first thought was, did I pronounce your name right? You totally did. It's very difficult to pronounce my name, even for people in Switzerland. So you did perfectly well. Wonderful. And then I think I mispronounced, did I say Kiev? It's Kiev, right? Kiev, right. In the Ukrainian version of the city name, it's Kiev. Okay, I want to make sure I use that. So it's Kiev. Right. Okay. Um, And then Ukraine? Ukraine is correct, right? Okay. I have, you know, and I know when the war first started, I know we were all saying the Ukraine and no, 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 it's Ukraine. And so then I was, I'm always worried about how I pronounce things. And then I wasn't sure where the accent was on Ukraine. Was it in the beginning or at the end? So I appreciate it. So before we get into what it is that you do now, which is just so fascinating. Can we talk about your ADHD diagnoses first? Yeah, sure. So I was diagnosed when I was 17 years old. I was attending high school back then in Switzerland, in this small town where I grew up. And I just had big problems, you know, sitting still, you know, during lessons, which, you know, like from from my perspective, you were never ending. And I just didn't know what what was going on with me. I never had that problem like on such a scale before that I really could not sit still and my thoughts were just running somewhere out, you know, just very far away from anything happening in class. So I thought at some point that I would need help, you know, talking to someone because I had the feeling that something really was wrong with me uh, up to some point. So uh, I went to see a psychiatrist in uh, in a town close by, and he actually asked me whether I 
thought about ADHD and I was just very surprised because I have heard of it before, but it was more connected, you know, like to young boys and, you know, having their emotions not under control, things like that. And I was just not ready for the diagnosis back then. I have the impression I really thought like, this is not something I could relate to. He gave me a book, which I read about, you know, women and ADHD, which was very progressive at this time. I think we're talking about yeah. the year 2007 or something, but this book was more about, you know, like the, the women, you know, later in their life, you know, having already several children and were just kind of feeling overwhelmed with all the workload and all the, you know, workload at home at the same time. So I thought like, I really cannot relate to this. And he just suggested to me, well, why don't you take medicine? Um, there is good medicine for this. And I thought like, you know, I was 17. I thought like, what are you going to tell me? I need some medicine. And I, you know, I was really like kind of this um, teenager, not really coming to terms with it and not really having, you know, like someone I could talk to, to whom I could relate more. I really had the impression that there was no one out there. I, I really kind of felt understood talking with. So I forgot just about this diagnosis and only a few years later when I was already like 25, I, you know, I, I was studying at university and I was at the same time working and I just had the impression that, you know, there were things going on in my life, uh, which I just could not understand. I thought like, I cannot understand why I reacted this way. Why did I forget things that were so important to me and like things that could be at work, but mostly like private things that I just would forget. And I could not explain to people really close to me why, why did I forget about it? And I just thought about this diagnosis back then again. And I thought like maybe it's time that I really think about it because it's, you know, it's not only like a thing that is hurting me, but it has also like an influence on my surroundings. So it was at the age of 25 when I really started getting help for it and, you know, like professional help. And I think that was the moment when I, came to terms with it and also understood a lot more uh, about my life before, what was going on, why I was like reacting in certain situations this way or why it happened at all that I was forgetting really kind of important things. So can you give us an example, Lucia, when you say you were forgetting really important things and you couldn't explain them? Do you remember what it was? Yeah, for example, you know, I agreed to a meeting, you know, with friends and I just would forget about it. You know, I agreed that we would meet somewhere and I just forget about it. And, you know, like friends were waiting for me and I was not showing up like things like this happen, you know, quite often. And I just could not explain to myself, why did it happen? I forgot it. Or I just came very late, you know, because I forgot about it. And then I was yeah. showing up really late. And of course, like, uh, it's very difficult, you know, like to, uh, you know, even when you then arrive late and then they ask, where have you been? And you're like, well, I forgot about it. Again, it's like at a certain point, you just realize there is something going on I need to have a look at because. Yeah. And it makes you feel like, well, they feel like you don't care. And that couldn't be further from the truth. You just literally forgot. And then you explain to them, well, it, it, it is really important. And I, I would like to show up on time. And they're like, yeah, okay. And then, <laughs> right. You know, think about it. I mean, I... I grew up in Switzerland and, you know, oh, wow. things in this country are always on time, every yes. time. So when you are the person running late, always, you know, it's kind of in this society, not really accepted. Being late is like uh, a huge problem, really a huge problem. 
So were those the kinds of things that you had the most trouble with? Or I know you said you had trouble in school, but I'm curious, were there certain subjects that you had a lot of trouble in and then other subjects that were super easy for you? Well, there were subjects which were super easy for me, um, but it just did not help, you know, me being more attentive in class because I was not, you know, really, it was very uh, difficult for me from a very, you know, young age to stay mm. calm in class. For example, I could read very fast and I did not understand how other children were not able to read as fast. So we were, you know, like uh, one child was uh, saying one sentence, you know, uh, and then the other child was repeating it <laughs> and we were moving on so slowly. And it was for me, it was just like, I don't know, torture sitting there and waiting until this child next to me would finish this sentence forever. It was uh, like this, you know, horrible. So were you the kind of child who was disruptive when you were that bored or were you the kind of child who would just go into your own dream world? So I'm, I guess I'm asking, were you diagnosed inattentive or combined type hyperactive? No, it's very interesting. This distinction actually does not really, I'm not sure about other European countries, but in Switzerland, it's not made. So you just get like the diagnosis ADHD and that's it. There was no further discussion, you know, into which kind of type uh, you fit more or whether you're the combined type. I think of myself that I'm the combined type just because, you know, like at the very young age, I was more of this hyperactive child. And then when I grew older, I was, you know, like more, it was more in the hyperactivity moved more into my head. So I was more just like, you know, running thoughts uh, really far away from anything happening around me at after the age of, I would say, like 14, 15, maybe. And as a child, I was just very loud in class. I thought of myself that I'm just, you know, having fun. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, like it was so easy in school for me, you know, like uh, during the first grade. So I was just very bored and I actually got kicked out. I think I spent like most of the lessons of my first and second grade just outside of the <laughs> classroom because like the teacher just like every time she just kicked me out of the classroom and said, you need to sit here for the rest of the lesson. So I spent like, so many hours in this hallway. I don't know. You know, what's so interesting is um, I think having ADHD is difficult enough in the United States, but I cannot imagine a country or countries like Switzerland and Germany where everything is so exact and everything is run by time. It must really be difficult there. <laughs> Can imagine in Switzerland, you know, for the trains, like for a train leaving, it's legal if the train leaves like three minutes even early, right? So oh no. every time when you need to get on a train and you have ADHD and you have like this time blindness thing, it's a yeah. real challenge. And it's something like, you know, with you get so stressed out about it because you know how people will have a look at you and, you know, like will react to you if you're not like on time. It's really something... Uh, that I came to terms with after really reading a lot about ADHD and really understanding that it's not, you know, like a, a character flaw, but that is something in my brain that makes it so difficult for me to be on time. Absolutely. You know, the other thing that you said about in Switzerland, there is no difference between, well, you don't have the three different types of ADHD. And the more I learn about ADHD, I wonder, are there really three different types? Because even with the inattentive women, I have never met one of them who didn't show some form of hyperactivity, you know, somatically, like with the body, you know, tapping their feet or picking on their cuticles. And then we know that 
what's going on in the brain where the brain is moving so fast, that alone is hyperactivity. So I, I'm starting to question, you know, don't we all have some form of hyperactivity, even if it means that it's just our thoughts? But what I have seen is it's never just your thoughts. There is always some sort of movement, some sort of activity that we don't even see, you know, as hyperactivity, like picking your cuticles, you know, or pulling your hair or twisting in your seat. So I find that interesting. So once you accepted the diagnoses, and it sounds like it took several years after you were first diagnosed, what did that change? Well, I would say it changed a lot because for the first time, I really understood like how things went were, was not, you know, always my intention, right? So that it was not something I deliberately actually uh, made certain mistakes, you know, did not show up when I really, will, you know, when it was actually my wish to show up to people, um, yeah. to myself as well. So I would say it was really a turning point because I, for the first time, was really opening my myself up to it and was really ready for reading it and was really ready for thinking about you know how uh, certain things in the past might have been influenced by my ADHD and about what things could I change about it. Uh, still, it was sometimes difficult because you know you feel like you're more than these kind of diagnoses and it felt sometimes, of course, that it was just like you know uh, it was a struggle to overcome to find like the the right time manager and the right things of um, medicine, you know, to, to get over it kind of, it was just an, an obstacle. But then this year, I think I really learned that it was also something I can be not only proud of, but can be really of use, you know, like not only for me, but also like for my work in this year, I learned so much about how ADHD in extreme situations can be of a, you know, can be really, really an asset to have. Okay, so tell us about that. Tell us what's going on. So before you start, where are you now? At the very moment, I'm sitting in Switzerland, not so far away from Zurich, which is the biggest city of the country. Okay, but you've spent a good amount of the year in Ukraine, right? Right. So tell us what's going on. Well, there is war going on. For example, today, like most people I heard of in Kiev, like in the capital of Ukraine, they don't have water or electricity because the Russian army attacked the infrastructure all over the country, but especially also in the capital, which means like they're at the very moment, they just have a blackout. So the uh, electricity providers are not able to provide electricity anymore because most of the power stations of the country got hit by rockets within the last, I would say, it's now already six weeks. And since the beginning of the war, there is like air raids all the time, all over the country. There is practically no day without air raids in Ukraine. People are dying, especially in the eastern part of the country, in the parts of the country where the Russian army occupied territory. So this is mostly eastern, northern and southern part of the country. Uh, at the very moment, you know, like the Ukrainian army had, you know, really big successes in the past two months. So they were able to free big amounts of territory in the north, but it's still like very heavy fighting in the eastern part. So close to Donetsk and uh, Luhansk, there really many people are dying. You know, we're not talking only about soldiers, but of course about civilians, because the weapons used in this war since the very first day 
are weapons which you know civilians will suffer for sure. There is no possibility that no civilians will suffer because uh, these kind of weapons are far too destructive to be, you know, like, so pointed um, to us that only, like, soldiers would die, which would all already be very bad, but of course it's... Aren't they also targeting? Um, I thought I read, I think it was yesterday, that there another hospital was hit, but I thought that it was actually targeted. Or is it just, you know, it's the result of what you were just saying that you can't be very pointed in what you hit. So everything around it, it doesn't matter if it's civilians gets hit. They're, well, it depends. I would say, uh, they're targeting. Yeah. Uh, civilians and civilian in- infrastructure. Well, the Russian army is, uh, deliberately targeting civilian infrastructure in some cases. Yeah. I've seen it myself. So for example, when you think about an air bomb, so a plane is flying over a town, dropping a bomb, so, like, the pilot knows what he is doing. So he has, mm-hmm. like, the concrete coordinates of a certain point and he knows exactly where he's dropping the bomb. Well, nowadays in 21st century, he knows it for sure. About the weapons, it depends on the weapons, sometimes on the rockets, whether they're really, you know, hitting a target by purpose or whether they, you know, did not hit the target correctly because there are certain Soviet-made uh, weapons which are not as precise as, you know, like, modern weapons, especially weapons, you know, produced in the West. So I've seen places myself, for example, in Izium, which is in the northeast of the country, which got liberated by the Ukrainian army in September. I went to this town a few days after the liberation by the Ukrainian army, and I've seen it myself, you know, like uh, a house, for example, that was targeted by an air bomb, and this house was a house full of civilians, and just like with one bomb, there were more than 50 people just killed in the spot. So there were families, told, you know, like whole families that were just, you know, like wiped out, like so to say. There's like a family where it's like uh, the grandfather of the family is left and all his family members are dead. And he was in there, you know, and he was a survivor of this attack. And there's just like, there are no words to describe, you know, like at a place like this, when you see that what's going on, uh, there is no explanation for it. I mean, it's like, Whatever happens on earth, there is no reason to drop a bomb on a house of civilians. Like, there is no reason for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, it's very, I would say, it's the hardest part to to see all this horror and to understand that, uh, you know, um, any infrastructure you can rebuild. But if people are dying, there is no way you get them back, right? They're gone. And for those family members, there is no way that they're, husband or wife or children or grandchildren are ever coming back. So this is the most devastating thing, I would say. And then the, the, you know, the effects of all of this trauma, which we now know can go on for generations. Well, I would say if there is any, you know, expert on trauma listening to this podcast, there is such a huge demand in Ukraine. I thought about it in the very first days, you know, I, I remember we were attending a funeral in Lviv. This is in the very uh, western part of the country. It was like a funeral of uh, soldiers, of three Ukrainian soldiers. And I was asking a young woman uh, standing close to the church whether she knows who who we might need to approach for getting permission to film inside of the church. And the lady said, oh, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's a funeral of my dad. 
And uh, she looked to me and said, like, I'm so afraid uh, going inside because I was there where, you know, my father was killed. So she talked about it, that she was actually a translator for the Ukrainian army. And she was at the same military base as her father when the military base got attacked by the Russians, by, you know, with rockets. So she survived, but she saw, um, like, you know, belongings of her father lying under the rubble. And so she had, like, really, really traumatic experiences. And she was not, you know, able to go into buildings after that because she was so afraid that the building just would, as the building she has been to, would break down on her. So she would be again under the rubble. And uh, I really had the impression that at this moment, you know, my job as a journalist normally is to talk to people. Actually, it's like the job I do. But in this uh, situation, like in many other situations, I decided I'd rather not talk to the person, not to cause any re-traumatization before yes. this person talked to an expert. She, she should not give any interview, right? Because I can really hurt her even more if she needs to relive all the horrible things she has seen. So it's really important from my perspective in this moment, not to, you know, to put yourself first in your job, but like the health of the person you're actually talking to. Yes. So, Yes. You know, and I think when we see the footage, you know, here in the United States, it just looks like rubble. And what we forget is that this Ukraine is a very modern country. I mean, you feel like you're going anywhere in Europe, right? And so I'm curious when you're walking around, is that what it looks like today? Is it, you know, there are just certain parts of the country that are devastated, but then you'll have other parts where everybody is going on and working and, and doing what they did before, or is the whole country affected? I would say it's like in war zones or in, in, in zones of conflict, it's like this very kind of um, strange situation that you can walk around a house and on one side is like totally, you know, like destroyed and it looks devastating. And on the other side, they're like people uh, following their lives as before. So I would say on one hand, this is actually very beautiful to see that life goes on, right? That people are managing and trying just to go on with their lives no matter what. And on the other hand, of course, it's very kind of a, a disturbing image. Like how can you like follow your lives while around there is like death and suffering. But I would say it's um, the resilience of people in, in this moment that is stronger than the uh, brutal force of any weapon. Uh, so I would say in a way it's positive. In Ukraine about the picture, I would say, well, it really depends how much a place got hit by the Russian army. There are uh, suburbs of Kiev in the northern part, which are closer to the Belarusian border. Uh, so like Bucha. Maybe someone has heard of it or Irpin, yeah. and they got really hit very hard. So when you're walking down a street in Bucha or Irpin, uh, still you might see, you know, that the Russian army destroyed huge parts of the of these towns. But in other parts of Ukraine, you can walk down a street and you will not immediately see, oh, there's a war going on. Of course, certain things have changed in every part of the country. So, for example, like the a shortage of electricity is a problem everywhere in Ukraine. Yeah. Oh, There's nearly no place in Ukraine uh, which did not get affected by, you know, these targeted um, attacks of the uh, infrastructure. 
So this uh, problem, I think, is really affecting everyone in the country. But of course, I mean, you would just see like that towns are just uh, dark uh, at a certain time of the day. So like, for example, in Kiev, they switched off the electricity, um, you know, like to save electricity for those very critical infrastructures like the hospitals or the military infrastructure or anything related to the government. So they switched off for all the other household electricity like twice a day for several hours, for example, in certain districts of Kiev. So, of course, you would walk through the center and it could be that it's totally dark. And, of course, mm. this is something uh, you would never have seen before. You know, there would be like street lights and yeah. advertisement everywhere. So, of course, it's something you immediately see, even if it's not like rubble and, you know, like bombed houses or something. So it depends really much where you are. How are the Ukrainian people actually doing? I mean, from here, again, in the States, it just looks like there's even more resolve. When you're around the people, do you feel that as well? I would say most of the people just have no no choice, right? So this is your life and your life is under attack. Like every aspect mm -hmm. of your life is under attack because many people mm -hmm. have lost their jobs, for example, because like companies were not able, you know, how you do business, uh, during wartime it's maybe it's working for a month maybe for two maybe for three but after a certain point you just do not have like uh, the money anymore to pay all your uh, employees for example so this is a huge problem of course that people have lost their jobs they're now sitting in their homes without electricity uh, in many parts of ukraine without heating and of course this is like a um, life is really difficult for many Uh, but I would say when your life is so much under attack and every aspect of it is under attack, you're trying to keep up because you have like the choice between giving up and this is not a choice. So you move on, you try to handle as good as you can. And of course it depends, you know, of course it depends on, on every person, how one is reacting. But I would say, especially uh, in this part of the world, people have like this family experience of i don't know how to put it even in words this family experience of tremendous uh, suffering and trauma within your family because like these people got affected by 70 years of soviet union and by the second world war so they have like in their dna i would say uh they really have this kind of survival instinct i would say if something like this would happen in switzerland like people would not cope so good as yeah. people do in Ukraine. Because I saw it, for example, I remember uh, COVID, right? Like for people in Switzerland, this was like never ever before in, you know, people could think about uh, such a situation, right? Like most probably in every country of the world. But I had the impression like for Swiss people, it was especially hard because, you know, we were not affected by Second World War in the way like other European countries were, right? So The Nazis did not invade Switzerland. We were, you know, like for different reasons, one can say, but uh, like we were very, very lucky in history. So people really do not have this resilience. Yes, I would say it's something new. It's for them, it's like such a crisis on such a level. It's uh, really not something, you know, they could talk to someone and have like an experience in their family to share, you know, to be shared with. It's absolutely out of there, out of anything people know here. So. So you were in Kiev when the war broke out. Yes. Did you know that 
this was going to happen? Or was this something that all of a sudden you're just in the middle of this war zone? Well, we thought that something bad would happen. And this was clear for quite some time. So I remember traveling uh, to the border, you know, like the border region between uh, Russia and Ukraine in spring 2021, actually. So like in April and May 2021, Mm -hmm. when there was already, you know, like many Russian troops in the border region and nobody exactly knew what was going on. Um, And back then... It was still possible to go uh, to this region for me. At the very moment, it's not possible. So back then it was clear, okay, this is something not really looking good. And there is some planning behind this, but nobody really understood what was going on. Or 100% believed it was going to happen, right? Because I know we on the other side of the world are thinking, oh, this isn't going to happen. Is this really going to happen? He's not going to do that. (laughs) Well, you know, to be very honest, I would say like... The United States or like the intelligence services of the United States, I'm not really sure which agency really uh, was gathering the intelligence at this point, they were aware of it. So the ambassador of the United States was not in Kiev on the 24th of February compared to the ambassador of Switzerland who was in Kiev on the 24th of February. So I would say they moved out of Kiev for a reason. So they knew that something was going to happen and there is now like as far as it is publicly known, uh, the Ukrainian government was informed by the intelligence uh, services of the United States and of uh, Great Britain, of the UK, that something was going to happen. I think there was like a discussion about the exact date. Yes, I now, I think I remember, weren't they all ordered back and they were telling everybody to get out? Yes. From right. the United States. So, yeah. I re- okay. Now you I remember. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so always now. When I try to estimate, are things going to be bad in Kiev or not? I always try to figure out whether the ambassador of the United States is in Kiev or not. So when the ambassador of the United States just, you know, showed up at some event or, you know, met with someone in Kiev, then I know, okay, well, in Kiev, it's not (laughs) going to be so bad, right? So it's like, I mean, it sounds kind of um, maybe a little bit stupid, but this is kind of the thing when you try to think about, hmm, what kind of information is not publicly known, but maybe, you know, you can find, you know, a workaround to get to more information, even without having any access, because, you know, I'm a Swiss journalist working for um, Swiss public broadcaster, which is comparable, you know, compared to, I don't know, any big broadcasting station, like, I don't know, the BBC or CNN, you know, it's just not comparable. When I see those guys in Ukraine, I'm like, okay, I'm such a small fish, you know, like compared because they're, I don't know how many correspondents at the very moment they have in Ukraine. It's just like a lot of people, really a lot of people. And they have always, you know, like these many security guards around them. Most of the time, former soldiers, which is also kind of this very special kind of uh, security team most of the time, because uh, these soldiers have experience most of the time in Afghanistan or Iraq. And most of them are not really, you know, they don't know the post-Soviet, like, Space. They don't know Ukraine. They don't know Ukrainian or the Russian language. So they're actually um, sometimes I really had like interesting uh, like you know meetings when I, I uh, when I really thought like are you really sure that you're actually helping with security with you know like for the journalist or are you more a security concern? I mean you know I'm traveling with I'm not sure but 
at certain points, I really had the impression that it's, I'm not really sure whether it's spending all that money on these security guys is always very wise. I'm not telling, you know, saying it about everyone, but I just had certain impressions that sometimes I'm wondering, are you really good advisors in the region or are you more, yeah. Ah, so you've said a couple times that this year really taught you a lot about how your ADHD brain works. And I, I think what you said too is, basically having the benefits, right, of having an ADHD brain, that it really made a difference. So can you talk a little bit about that? So imagine it's February and outside of your window, you hear these boom, boom explosions um, and you realize, okay, they're bombing Kiev. You just have heard like the president of the Russian Federation giving a public announcement that he's going to start what uh, he called a special military operation. But of course, this is a war. There's no question about it. And I just kind of functioned. I put on my vest. I put on my helmet. I brushed my teeth. And I called my cameraman and said, we're getting out. And he was ready to get out because I had like this impression things are going to be bad. I just had, you know, like this gut feeling that something was going to be really really not in a good direction. And still I was not convinced, like the night before, I still was not convinced that the Russian army is going to bomb Kiev, but I had like the impression that it might be wise to be able to get very fast out of town. So I advised my cameraman, you know, the night before, you know, just get your car ready, try, you know, all your things that you need for, you know, leaving uh, town very fast, get your things together because we might need to get out very fast. So a few hours later, it turned out to be that I was, you know, totally right. I mean, it was not as bad as in Mariupol, which is in the southern, southern east part of the country, or in Khramatorsk, this is also in the east, but still it was bad in Kiev. So I think in this very moment, my ADHD really helped me to focus because it was such an extreme situation. And I remember, you know, I got calls from my editors in Zurich. And of course, it was a super overwhelming situation for everyone. I mean, this situation... By no means you can call this normal at all. But I really had the impression that I was more focused and more calm than editors in Zurich who called me, you know. Like they were totally freaking out on the phone. And I was like, I just had the impression I'm trying to calm them down. I said like, yeah, hey, now we're we're driving out of the out of the city. Um, yeah, we can do this live broadcast. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I know it's war. I know it's horrible. But we will do this uh, special broadcast and... Uh, the special broadcast is going to be interesting to watch. So I try to really focus them back on work and, you know, losing their mind even more, you know. And this was an impression when I had, like, when I hung up the phone, I thought, like, this is crazy. I actually tried to call down this person and this person is sitting in Zurich and I'm here outside, like, <laughs> just, you know, like, trying to drive out of Kiev. And there was a huge car traffic, you know, like, people were trying to flee panically because nobody nobody knew what was going to happen, right? And I mean, the 24th of February, it was really a dangerous situation, actually, because we were driving out of Kiev through a highway that is um, going north. So actually a highway that goes through towns like Bucha, Irpin, and Borodyanka, which got heavily hit by the Russian army afterwards. And as it turned out, you know, like just a few hours later on the same highway, there were already civilians attacked, like civilian cars on the same highway I took were attacked 
a few hours later because special forces of the Russian army were already at an airport in Dostomil, which is a little bit in the northwest of, of Kiev. So we were driving by there. We already had like our life broadcast with the TV station just a few kilometers away from these uh, Russian special forces, which I did not know at the very moment that so close there were like Russian special forces. When I think about it now, it's of course very scary. And you think like, okay, this could have gone totally wrong. But in this very moment, I was really focused. You know, I was really kind of, you know, not trying to uh, pay attention to anything else going on than the most important thing. And this was like focusing on what is right, you know, in front of your nose and nothing else. And I would say my ADHD really helped me at this point because I'm quite sure that I would not have been able to focus, which is so weird, right? Because you think, oh, like ADHD, people have problems to focus. But in such a moment of crisis and extreme situation, your brain actually is doing wonders, right? Your brain is working like a smooth machine. It's crazy, but you really don't have any, you don't, you know, you don't waste time on questions. Like I had the impression many people around me were wasting time on questions that were not questions for me anymore. Like I remembered I was standing outside of this hotel waiting with my luggage for my cameraman to pick me up. And there were other uh, journalists, you know, like gathering in front of this hotel, not knowing what to do. And there was this young lady and she was like looking at me and saying, are you putting on your vest and your helmet? Do I really need to do this? This is kind of heavy. I don't like to wear it. And I'm like, yeah, well, I don't like bombs and rockets. And I think I heard some explosions like just a few minutes ago. So I put that on. I mean, you can decide on your own. But in this moment, I'm just not <laughs> really, I'm not really like into discussing, is it too heavy for me to wear or not? I'd rather yeah. wear it than getting hit. So it's the intensity that just made you even more focused, right? Or made you more focused than you ordinarily would be. I would say so. Because at this very moment, you know, like it's like uh, your ADHD brain is just in this moment when there's no, there's no other way you could think about around it. There's just like this one thing going on and you focus on that. And, and then it, it works perfectly well. There is no need to, you know, think about it. Ah, maybe I could take another route or maybe I could do something else. No, at this very moment, there's just like this road and you dri drive down this road. That's it. What's interesting too is that your broadcaster, all they care about is get out, get out. And you're like, well, I'm here anyway, so why don't we make use of this, right? We can, you know, I can record, I can film, right? Report. Yeah, we have this, we, we agreed that if something would happen, if something would happen, we, do a, we would do a live broadcast. But of course, really nobody at our uh, news station thought that they're really going to bomb Kiev. You know, we thought like, yeah, it's going to be bad in, in the eastern part of the country, but that they would actually bomb Kiev. We did not take that so serious at this one, you know, before. So this broadcast was actually agreed on before. So if something happens, we're going we're gonna to do a live broadcast, but nobody thought about it, you know, that it would really, you know, that I would be, at such an amount of danger, you know, surrounding me. Nobody thought about this. And I think maybe it was just enough, you know, like the things we knew back then, it was enough, you know, for me to, to react because uh, to be really prepared, you can be prepared only to a certain amount. You cannot be prepared to everything. So in this moment, you know, when you, when you hear like the rockets exploding, you can think about what could they have, you know, um, sh been shot at, what kind of infrastructure could be, now targeted because, you know, like the first day they just like bombed every 
I think basically every uh, airport in this in the country. So like every airport got a hit. So you could think about it. Ah, okay, where are all the airports, for example, right? Or where are military bases? You know, very big military bases got hit as well. So you can try to to figure out a way out of town, but there is always going to be like a certain amount of insecurity. And I think the ADHD brain helps with that as well because you are always dealing with so many options in your head so that when you need to think really fast and make very fast decisions, your brain is just kind of more used to it, <laughs> to this uh, handling of many, many options. And then in a, in a moment when you really need to take a decision within very few seconds uh, i think this is my impression of having you know like working working with my brain during the past few months that my brain is working faster in, in you know in some ways that really i don't and, know and it's almost easier because we have all these ideas and so we struggle to make decisions at times versus here it's life or death it's so intense that it's really easy for us so much easier right to make that one decision rather than having to consider all these other decisions we don't have time Totally. And I would say, you know, in, in a certain, to a certain point, it makes life easier, you know, because wow. this is something I also kind of realized during the last few months, you know, that um, it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a test for all the people around you because you get to know people really fast. You know, you get to know people really fast in a way that you really understand who can you count on in an extreme situation and who is really not going to show up, right? In a, in you know, at, at a certain point when you really need their help. So, I would say this is also like of helping you to understand uh, what kind of uh, relations are, are really worth going for it, and you know, like investing time and and energy into it, and which kind of relations are not so useful. Actually, I always kind of remember the sentence a good friend of mine told me. She comes from the Czech Republic. Her parents came to Switzerland in the 80s and she is Jewish and her grandmother has been to Auschwitz and her grandmother told her once, like, uh, choose your friends by the standard, by question yourself, would this friend uh, hide me from the Gestapo, which is like the, the police, the, the German, yeah. the Nazi police, which did all the house searchings, right, for, you know, people they were, were looking for, like, for example. Um, most of the time choose so she told my friend so like ask yourself would this person hide me from the gestapo and if you answer the question with yes then this is this person is worth of your friendship or is a good friend and if this person would not hide you don't consider this person to be a really good friend so i thought about this sentence quite a few times during this year because uh it, it is really kind of you know it's like a test for for people's qualities actually and it really makes yours maybe it makes your uh, circle, circles, you know, of uh, of good friends, smaller, or of you know, people you would consider after it, just like people you know. But um, it helps in in a way, it makes life much easier because there is much less people to focus on because you really get to know people very fast. I mean, it's the same thing for people at work, you know, like really, you appreciate. I appreciate many many people uh, which I you know did not know so well before, but I really can count count on them you know like for example my cameraman in, in in ukraine you know he's um really a person i know i could you know trust my life with because he drove us out of kiev so i know i can trust this person my life with and this is something of huge worth and of course i'm grateful for uh, everything you know i would say because this is also something i'm really 
I don't know, you know, when especially when I'm back in Switzerland, I have the impression that I'm such more grateful for, you know, just like basic things, you know, like um, having a place to stay. That's a great thing to have, like, because yeah. I understood in this, you know, like, I mean, I was living in Russia uh, in back in February because I was based um, as most of the correspondents, you know, responsible for the so-called post-Soviet space. I was based in Moscow. So when the thing happened on the 24th of February, I immediately understood, which is also thanks to my ADHD brain, I immediately understood that Russia would turn into kind of a, a big North Korea, right? So that this country is going to shut down its doors and it's going to be really hard getting out of the country, getting into the country, what any relation with this country is going to be a huge obstacle. So I called my husband and I told him, like, leave, <laughs> like, leave the country yeah. as soon yes. as you can. And for me, it was totally clear, you know, and this as well is thanks to my ADHD brain, because for me, it was absolutely clear there was no other option. And, and I tried to get all, you know, like employees out of the country we had, like the cameraman, the, like the editor, the video editor, because I thought like they're men their, you know, conscription is going to be a huge problem. They might, you know, be forced to join this horrible war as soldiers. So I, I contacted them and said, we need, you know, we need to get you out of the country. This is, you can't stay there. It's dangerous. And I would say this is thanks to my ADHD brain, right? So that for me, it was so well, clear. It was your this intuition, right? You knew, you could see what was going to happen before anybody else could see it. Well, I would say, um, besides the U.S. intelligence services, yeah, they saw it before. But I would say, like, for those without uh, special access to information, yeah. Compared, well, and it's so interesting, Lucia, because on one hand, we're very optimistic. You know, that's I always joke about time optimism. You know, if I was able to get somewhere in 25 minutes one time on a holiday when there was no traffic in my brain, I now think, oh, it takes me 25 minutes to get there. So on one hand, we're very optimistic. But then on the other hand, you were, and I feel like this too, where I can see what's going to happen often way before other people can see it. And it's just clear, like, okay, this is what we need to do. And it sounds like that's exactly how you felt. And of course you were right. Well, I, I could tell you another story. I totally agree with you. You know, I mean, I had like the impression, okay, I need to get my thing, my stuff out of Russia, right? All my belongings, right? My, my, my bed, like my books, everything. You were living in Russia at the time? Yes. Yes. So we had a flat there, you know, like we had, my husband was there, my my dog was there. We had just like, you know, and uh, at the end of December, we had like, uh, we were joined by a very cute puppy, like a small Bichon Frise. So we had like this puppy at home and a cat and my husband and uh, like all our stuff was there. So I, you know, first I prioritized, I said like, okay, need to get out with the dog and he could not take the cat out, you know, at the same time, you know, there's a limitation of how many animals you can take to a plane as one person, right? You can only take like one animal, like at one time for one person, right? So, and he was traveling alone, so he took out the dog and we were able to manage, you know, to, to get the cat out of the country after a few months, luckily, so the cat is with us now, but uh, as well, but it was really kind of a challenge, right? Um, but coming back to the thing about about our stuff, so I I realized that okay, I need to organize, you know, like uh, from a distance, you know, like uh, the the whole like moving out of the country. So I organized the, because I felt like okay, sanctions gonna to, are going to happen, right? And uh, 
the, the border is going to be closed and it's going to be problematic. Maybe there won't be any lorries. Maybe there will be huge queues. So we need to get our stuff out of the country, right? So I organized, when I was still like driving out of Ukraine, I was already organizing, you know, like kind of these lorries and, you know, like a company that would pack our stuff and things like that. So we managed to do it, like, you know, like from a distance, but in the end, well, in the end, of course, it was a huge, you know, like it was such a huge demand for lorries because so many companies were, you know, like Western companies were leaving Russia because of the war. So like prices went up like crazy, like prices for, for lorries and all these uh, transportation companies, they just skyrocketed, you know, like it was just insane it, within a very, you know, within very short time. But so I was able, you know, like to move all the stuff out of the country. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I think like uh, I really appreciate by now having like a place to stay, which is really great. You know, having your staff is something uh, I never, ever appreciated in my life so much. You know, knowing where are your shoes and your yeah. jackets and I don't know, your photographs, your wedding photographs. It's just like a, it's it's a huge privilege, which I never, ever appreciated before. So, <laughs> wow. So you're the perfect example of being in your purpose. And what I always say is you don't find your purpose. It was always there. So you step into it. You've known since childhood that you wanted to be a journalist. And I'm curious, do you remember what it was about journalism that you were so attracted to? And how does that play out today? Is it still something that you you love, even having gone through this experience? Maybe you even love it more. Well, I would say I got interested in journalism because, you know, like, for example, when the radio was on or when my parents were reading the newspaper, they were really kind of, you know, paying attention to this. And this was important. Like when the news were on, whether on the radio or in the newspaper or uh, on TV, it was like something you pay attention to, right? This is important. Like people tell us what's going on and we really, really need to know what's going on. So we listen to them. And I was really, you know, like kind of fascinated by this focus of my parents to these kind of various broadcasts. And uh, I think I started trying, you know, like to focus as well and to understand, you know, what was going on and what were they paying attention to. And I started actually writing a newspaper myself when I was, you know, like I think like eight years old or something. So I like <laughs> I've done my own newspaper for my family, like, you know, like with I don't know, news about our cat and about like whether the weather is snowing outside or something like this. And, you know, like I think the interest, you know, like of the readers was kind of limited because, you know, I have done like a lot of quizzes and nobody actually handed in like the answers. So it was like as an editor, I got very frustrated, right? I was like putting up a new uh, issue of the of the newspaper for the family and I was like writing so Nobody answered the quizzes of last time. Still, I'm going to do like quizzes in this issue as well. <laughs> Waiting for your answers, right? Kind of frustrated. But yeah, I think I, I never lost kind of the, the love for the job because I think it's just for me personally, it's, it's perfect. You know, I have always uh, the chance to talk to new people, uh, people uh, telling their stories. And I think it's a huge privilege, you know, like to have to ask questions. Like, and they're so 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 many things in this world that highly interest me and if i can you know make a living out of uh, asking questions and meeting new people this sounds perfect for me still right i could not imagine you know like uh, a job where i would be forced to sit inside at the same place and doing kind of repetitive stuff which is 
absolutely terrifying for me. I really, I think this is also related to my ADHD brain, but going outside, meeting people, telling their stories, always new stories, always new people. This is something I really, really love um, up to this day. So uh, I'm not doing quizzes anymore. <laughs> I'm doing more of kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, different stories, but yeah, I'm, I'm still really in love with the job. It sounds like for you, and of course, this is an ADHD thing, but it sounds like there's a lot of curiosity. Absolutely. I would say this is actually the reason why I got interested in this region of the world in the first place, right? Because it was so different from anything I knew. I mean, I'm from a country where, you know, we're a really small country and people are always complaining, oh, we don't have enough space in Switzerland. You know, it gets really crowded in here with 8 million you know, million inhabitants. Uh, I mean, yeah, for someone in the United States, this sounds maybe like a joke, but yeah, for certain areas in this world, 8 million people is a lot. So in Switzerland, since a few years, there's always discussion about we don't have enough space and prices for, you know, houses are skyrocketing and things like that. So in Russia, you really don't have that problem, right? So you have mm, like a lot huge. of... Yeah, it's huge. It's like enormously huge. You can uh, sit in a plane for eight hours, you know, and you're still in the same country right what does and it have is it true it has like 14 time zones yes yes i think that's, that's what my son was my son loves you know geography and travel and all of that and he told me that i don't know a couple months ago i'm like really and so i've always wondered was that true that's insane yeah well i would say the united states has a a few time zones as well you know i'm from a country where there is like one time zone so yeah. <laughs> we only have three or maybe we have okay. maybe we have four maybe we have four so, Lucia, I have to ask you, have you met Zelensky? Yeah, I have met, like, the president of Ukraine. It was yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the press conference, uh, it was in spring, when he met with the UN uh, general secretary, with Mr. Guterres in Kiev, and they were meeting about, you know, like, agreeing on a, on a green corridor for uh, civilians uh, leaving Mariupol and for the you know, like for the fighters, uh, the Azov fighters, which were back then captured, you know, like in a really difficult situation in Mariupol. And it was, uh, you know, they were meeting that for... church? Were they in... It was that the one where they were in that church? It was not a church. It's like a, a former, a very huge factory, a steel factory in Mariupol. And this steel factory was like their, you know, place where they were still uh, holding position and it was like the last position which was under control of the Ukrainian army uh, in whole Mariupol so they got bombed like hourly by the Russian army and uh, so the situation was very dire there and there were still civilians in the in the steel factory hiding as well because they had like these uh, very uh, old Soviet bunkers at this factory so people were trying you know, to, to find a safe place there and actually got locked up there. And it was very difficult uh, having no clean water, no food. So it was a really a humanitarian catastrophe on its way. And uh, the UN General Secretary met with the Ukrainian president and we were able to attend this press conference. And yeah, for the very first time in my life, I was able to ask Mr. Zelensky a question. Of course, this was a very huge moment for me because, you know, it's like I was covering Ukraine before. So I was covering the... Um, the uh, 2019 um, presidential elections. And I remember, ah. you know, like Zelensky back then was this candidate, you know, like very uh, untypical candidate for any, I would say, presidential elections. Of course, like the United States, you had an actor as president as well, but 
you know yeah. it was something totally new for for ukraine and it was also very special because he had like this um oh you know he has this uh uh which is like the uh i need to think about uh, like the servant of the peoples uh you know it was like a series where he played president so he played president yes. as an actor and then he became president so this was kind of a totally kind of on one hand an absurd situation and of course i was very impressed like meeting him because it is such a situation where i would say like Zelensky proved as a person to the whole world that when it comes you know when when it comes to extreme situations he's someone uh the country can count on right so everyone who was like in not taking him serious in 2019 and saying like he has no experience in politics what kind of uh candidate is that no one can take him serious i mean uh everyone got proof that you can take him very serious when it really matters so i'm of course i would say as most of the people i know i'm very impressed by his performance as president of course uh I think it's really impressive what he is doing. And on the same time, of course, I mean, I would not, I mean, his situation is unimaginable to me because he's really, you know, I'm, I'm sure he has much more information than he's able to share with any journalist. So he knows about, you know, difficult situations at front lines or, for example, how many people died in this war. So we do not know how many Ukrainian soldiers died in this war, but because they're not, um, you know, publicly saying how many people actually died because they do not want to, um, you know, like when troops are fighting, it's considered to be very demotivating if you're telling them how many comrades already died. So they're not sharing this information, but I'm quite sure that he has certain, you know, numbers at the presidential administration at hand. So I think for him, it's uh, much, the more information you have, the more you know about how grim the situation is and about how many lives have been lost during the past nine months, I would say the the more devastating it is and the more difficult it gets to, you know, to make certain decisions. So I'm, of course, I'm very impressed by his performance yeah. as president. He's just, he's just an amazing leader. I mean, he doesn't ask his people to do anything he wouldn't do. He makes decisions quickly and he's just really inspiring. I'm... I, I mean, all I do is follow him on social media, and I'm a little disturbed by, you know, I don't know if it's just our country, but, you know, being so fickle, but he was always on the news, you know, the front of social media. And now I've noticed what's happening in Ukraine often doesn't make the front page. Um, and I noticed that, you know, his posts don't get as many likes. And I'm curious if that's a U.S. thing or is that happening in Europe as well. And I guess Twitter and Instagram would be worldwide. So perhaps it is happening all over the world where, you know, it's just like, oh, well, we know that's happening, but, you know, we're bored. We're on to the next thing, which is really frustrating. You know, I would say this is one of the problems why uh, this war actually uh, took place because uh, one uh, just did not pay attention anymore, right? I mean, this whole thing started in 2014 uh, and it actually never ended, right? Of course, like the scale was totally different. But back then, if the reaction would have been more severe and more swift, uh, for example, to the annexation uh, of Crimea, like which is a part of Ukraine, I would consider that mm, we would not have such a situation as we're having today. And of course, it's... um. I mean, it must be 
for me, it's very hard to imagine how difficult the situation must be if you if you're actually you know from Ukraine and you have you know been witnessing what was going on uh, during the last eight years. And I mean, Zelensky was talking about it himself. You know, he he, he was talking about how he attended like the European Championship of Soccer in 2012 in the in Donetsk when Donetsk was still you know like this very prosperous uh, town in the eastern part uh, city of Ukraine. And uh, that he was not able to go there anymore. And that for him, it's absurd that it's considered not to be part of his country by anyone. So that Russia is actually claimed. So this is now part of our country. Uh, seems absurd to him. And I can only, uh, you know, try to imagine how it must feel like if this is really part of your country and you have friends there and your friends were, you know, forced to flee the city because uh, the city gets occupied by so-called separatists which are clearly backed by Russia so it's really hard to imagine you know like to to be in this position and I'm really not you know I'm I'm just feeling very privileged that I'm not right that I'm kind of you know still never mind how much this war affected me myself it's totally different if uh, you're from Ukraine yourself yeah wow are you still going back and forth to Ukraine well, you know, there's like a thing, uh, actually, now it reminds me of what we did not talk about yet. So um, uh, this situation would have been complicated enough, right? Like the war going on, uh, we do not having uh, like a, a fixed home at the very moment, you know, uh, due to the war. Um, like we, speaking of me and my husband and our cat and our dog. So I got pregnant in, if this would not be like, Difficult enough, right? I got pregnant in uh, a few months ago, so I'm now like five months pregnant. And uh, due to security reasons, you know, like by the Swiss law, you're not allowed, um, you know, to put your employee into a certain risk area. So I was able to travel to Ukraine back when I was not pregnant. And uh, now I'm, I'm pregnant, and I inform my employee. So I'm at the very moment not able to travel to Ukraine. So like at the very moment, I have like a stop on traveling there myself. Ah. For, well, congratulations. Well, thanks. So is well, this something, Lucia, is this something we're not supposed to talk about? Well, we can talk about it. Um, okay. We can talk about it. It's fine for me. It's The thing is, well, um, I'm still, you know, working together with people. So this, this means, like, we're still producing uh, reports. Like, we have done a report this week about Kherson, which got liberated. Like, um, when was that? On the 11th of November, so, like, nine days ago. Is it no? It's more than nine days. It's already twelve days. So we still are doing like our reporting, but me myself, I cannot travel there until the child is here. So that's quite some time. If you know, I'm now five months pregnant. I mean, I totally understand it from the uh, editor's point of view or from our company's point of view. But of course, I would love to travel there. And I mean, I've been there while I was pregnant. I was just like you know, like in the first four months when I did not inform my, you know, like my bosses, I just traveled there, right? So I was there pregnant. So, I mean, I have this experience, of course, it's not like, I'm, I'm not like the one who is, you know, like on the very first front line. So I'm doing more of these stories, like um, about people that got affected by the war. I'm not this, how to say, war correspondent that is embedded with the army going to the front, front line. You know, there are always certain, how to say, uh, when you speak about front line, there's like certain, uh, there are, are more than 10 front lines normally, right? So you have like the 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 front line zero, then you have the first front line, the second, the third, and so on. 
I didn't know that. Well, yeah, I didn't know before either. So it was something I learned this year. <laughs> Happy to share, <laughs> right? So uh, I'm not the one, you know, who is going to the to the app, you know, like to the zero front line. Um, I'm much more interested. I think for it's um, my duty is more to report about, you know, like the influence on people's life. You know, like people living a little bit further. You know, like the civilians about how they're coping, uh, how the war affected their lives. So. Of course, at the zero front line, of course, this for a pregnant woman, this would be very dangerous because of the explosions and the shock waves that could really hurt the unborn child. So this would be something absolutely not, that's not recommended. I didn't um, know that either. Oh my gosh. But it makes sense. Even the fact that a pregnant woman would constantly be in fight or flight in a war zone, right? And how that would affect the baby. Right. I would say, you know, I mean, I have the impression, you know, and I read about, you know, like the difficulties and the danger of, you know, losing your child during the three first months. Um, I, of course, thought, you know, my child survived this. So my child is actually a little fighter, like my unborn child. I have the impression it's going to be a kind of, you know, like a very strong person because uh, this child actually has been to Ukraine for several times within the <laughs> yeah. first uh, months of the existence of this uh, unborn child. So I would say this child is going to be a very strong person, or I have the impression uh, that it's going well, to be a I very strong person. Well, I think so too, though, because you're ADHD, right? So when everybody else was in fight or flight or freeze, you were like, I'm in my element. <laughs> well, I would say so, right? I mean, I had like... <laughs> I remember, you know, a friend of mine, he's working as a press officer for the Ukrainian army. And I met him in Izium and he was like, you are now here. And how many months are you now pregnant? And I was like, it was in September. And I was like at the beginning of the fourth month pregnant. And I told him and he was like, this is so huge, right? You know that this is so huge that you're still coming here, right? Never, never mind what's going on with you. And I said like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I did not have the impression, right? This is something that also, I think it has something to do with ADHD. I have like, I don't know. Um, I think not being so much worried about things that seem to be out of my control is also something that, you know, is thanks to the ADHD brain, because I really have the impression like at this moment, I do not have like free space uh, to think about this and to worry about this. I rather focus on what I'm doing at the very moment. So yeah. um, all yeah, the what no, ifs that usually never happen anyway, right? You know, I, I talked a lot of uh, a lot about our situation with my husband, of course, and he always said, like, it's so interesting to see that you're coping so well with all this uncertain, you know, with all this uncertainty. We we don't know actually what's going on, you know, within a few weeks' time, within within a few months' time, we we just have kind of uh, to settle in in a totally new situation. And for me, this is like something that comes more natural to me in a way because I'm like, okay, what can we do now? And it's like. Not such a, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not thinking about. Oh, this could be so much easier, or oh, if our lives would be just different, or something like this. These kind of thoughts just do not come to my mind because I think it's like the ADHD brain works differently, right? I'm, I'm trying to find kind of way, you know, certain ways out. You know, even if I'm now pregnant and I cannot travel to Ukraine, okay, what can we do that? We still can have, you know, like reports. Uh, what can I do that the people in Ukraine still have the opportunity, you know, to work for us? Because like, as I uh, said before, it's difficult with jobs for journalists as well, right? So like people there are 
uh, because you know, imagine that the TV station uh, is not selling any advertisement at the moment, right? So they have really cut it like the numbers of employees, you know, and so many journalists are jobless now in Ukraine, which is kind of absurd in a situation where, you know, you have so many things going on in the country and they would need reporting so much and uh, like the many journalists lost their jobs. So I really feel kind of obliged, you know, like for the people working for us that they still have the opportunity to work on, you know, so. Uh, hmm. Yeah. So Lucia, what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I would say focus on your strength is one of the biggest thing that helped me and coming to terms with the diagnosis and see it not something as that is always uh, in your way, but something that you can actually use for good and which helps you and maybe also like the people around you. Yeah. Do you have a number one ADHD workaround? Embrace your ADHD maybe and... I would say a watch is a good thing, not only in Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what kind of watch do you wear? Do you have an Apple watch or an Android watch? I can't remember what the Android one is called. <laughs> Me neither. I'm not sure. Is that now Is that now kind of advertising? Yeah, I have, a, I have an Apple watch. So yeah, which is very yeah. helpful with all the timers, right? I'm really kind of uh, grateful for that because uh, otherwise, yeah, I would run late so many times more in my life, I think. Oh, not saying that I'm so punctual as a Swiss, wa Swiss watch. Maybe this is why I'm not wearing a Swiss watch, right? Uh, too bad. <laughs> well, the thing about like a regular watch is that you have to remember to look at it. And if you're not reminded, you're not going to remember to look at it. And that's the beauty of, you know, any of these smartwatches. I think they're called smartwatches. I know they're called smartphones that you, you can set those constant reminders so you don't forget. You know, literally, I can, <laughs> a half an hour before, know that I have a meeting. I'm all ready to go, totally prepared. I start working on something. And I literally, in 30 minutes, I can forget that I had a meeting if I'm not reminded, you know, because of hyperfocus and we just forget. So one thing I do want to say is, you know, a lot of times people will, will say to me, well, I can't afford an Apple Watch. And what they need to know is you don't need the souped up Apple watch. You can buy the $200 Apple watch. And I honestly believe that you can't live without it. It literally is my most favorite piece of tech. It has changed my life. And yeah, we just, we just need, you just need the one with the reminders. So anyway, Lucia, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? Well, they can find me on Twitter. Uh, which is like my name and my surname, so Lucia Chirki, uh, under the same like uh, handle. I'm on Instagram. I need to say to people that most of the time I post in German. So I apologize and I really hope that the auto-translated version of German into English is sufficient to understand what the hell am I talking about. So, and if not, just reach out to me and I'm more than happy to explain in English. Lucia, how many languages do you speak? Well, I would say like on the level of my English is like German and Russian. My French really is not, no, I don't use it. And if you don't use it, you lose it. So I would say I can understand French and I can, have, I'm, you know, I'm able to have a conversation, but my written French is not as good as wow. it should be, I would say. So, well, your English is excellent. So have you always been good with languages? 
I would say so, yeah. I would say languages were something that came easily to me or more easily than other things that I seem not so useful, right? Languages, um, especially if you live in Europe, you're used to it. Like, for example, in Switzerland, we have like four official languages. And for me, it's something absolutely natural that a person coming from the same country is not speaking the same language, right, as a mother tongue. So I'm just totally used to it that it might be that uh, I need to switch language uh, for understanding a person that is, you know, I don't know, living 200 kilometers away from me. And I would say this really helps when you're from an early age used to it. This really helps to understand that, yeah, languages are a really useful tool and it really helps when you speak other languages. And this was also like a big motivation for me to learn Russian so that I would be able to speak to people directly. Um, of course, you have like all the huge advantages nowadays of all these kind of translation services. But still, yeah. it, it helps so much if you have a, a knowledge of language and you can use it by your own, uh, not depending on technology. Absolutely. I'm I'm so impressed. And I don't know if you know this, but I was born in Germany and my first language was German. However, I probably have a knowledge of German today, like your knowledge of uh, French, meaning that I can understand most everything, but my speaking is pretty choppy. And the only reason I think I can speak German is because it was my mom's, you know, first language. And she spoke to me for the first couple of years of my life exclusively in German. All the other languages, I can't, I'm not good at languages, but German, it was just, that's how my brain was wired so I could speak it or at least, you know, understand it. So there's one other question before you go that I've been wanting to ask you. Do you have really good working memory? Because I would assume that you're really good in front of a camera and just kind of ad-libbing and going with, um, you know. Well, actually, that's something I, I thought about many times when you were, uh, you know, talking to someone about your working memory in the podcast before, because... This was something I, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm really used to it either or it just comes to me more naturally. I can, you know, most of the time, I'm not taking notes anymore even, you know, I'm just like, you know, it's like a free speech. And I, you know, I, I try to remember, okay, what about, you know, I try to think, what do I would like to answer on this question? And then uh, I try to say to myself before, but as it is spoken language, I try not to put it down because it's much more natural when you are trying to formulate it, you know, in a, in, and you, you, you're actually trying to say the sentence or the few sentences you're going to say on TV to a person or, I don't know, to you, to yourself in the mirror before going live then writing it down because written language is much different from spoken language because the sentences are much longer and much more complicated and it's just impossible i would say for any brain to remember it and especially like for you know your audience because your audience is also only like seeing and listening and when you're you know saying sentences uh, at live broadcast which are meant to be written and not be spoken so it's like very difficult to follow you and your thoughts so it's much easier uh you know like to to stick to this stick to the spoken language i would say this is something for me that is not so difficult actually you know it actually has been yeah. kind of um manageable of course sometimes you know after a live broadcast you have like this moment and you think like oh my goodness like this sentence was actually not so very well uh pronounced or i should have put it differently but most of the time i get like the feedback from the editors 
How the heck do you manage such long sentences without losing your thought? This is impressive. And for me, it's like no, nothing special. It's just like my brain works like this. I can you know, remember where I started the sentence. But yeah, I'm very grateful for this. And I hope I don't lose it with the age, but I'm not sure about it. But at the moment, <laughs> it's not a problem. Well, if it, if it gives you any consolation, I was never good at that. I forget where I'm going. And I, and I think it's when there's even a little bit of nerves that that's what really does it. Because clearly when I'm comfortable and I'm just speaking to people, then no problem at all. I can speak all day, but something where I need to remember, okay, we started here. This is the middle part. This is the end part. And it needs to be tight. So there's more pressure, like when you're being filmed, right? (laughs) That I've, I've struggled with, but I have met so many ADHD women who, certainly on this podcast, who are so good at the working memory when it comes to, um, you know, being on camera. And so I'm always curious, how do they do that? And I, I really um, am interested in your comment that when you prepare, the sentences are much longer versus when you're more ad lib, they're much shorter. So that's, that's a really good piece of information. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Very happy to help. (laughs) (laughs) Lucia, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. And thank you, too, for the important work that you do. I mean, good, accurate journalism. It is the backbone of a democracy. And I just, I have so much appreciation for your work and just, you know, you and your ADHD brain. Thank you very much for having me. And I really want to say, you know, like if someone is uh, listening to this podcast and is worried about, you know, what I'm going to do with my brain, I'm just would like to encourage every woman that I'm sure there is something uh, outside there, which is really, really good for you and your brain and for all the people around you. Absolutely. Thank you, Lucia. Thanks. Before I leave you, just a quick reminder that our doors for our first ever January, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, are open. And if you want to save $100, use the code HOLIDAYS2. You can go to tracyoutsuka.com forward slash AOK for more information. I would love to have you join us. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Lucia, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.